1: This webinar was previously recorded and converted to a listening format. Now, please enjoy this timely and valuable market information from expert commercial real estate investor James Candesami and special guests.
0: So, the three big questions that I ask, and every time after selling uh, over, I think I'm at 87 or 88 companies now, maybe I'm in the 90s, I forget now, um, is that. Uh, I add, get this question every single time from the M&A firms. So the mergers and acquisition firms, right? The, the lawyers and legal groups that I'm using is number one, it's always performance, right? So think about buying a business. Now I have to architect it for potential sale, right? Like I don't want to just sit and operate this business for long. What I'm trying to do is get to an equation where instead of operating this business for the next uh, 10 or 15 years, taking that money off the table in a shorter time period. Uh, for instance, one of the businesses we just sold at the EBITDA or the net profitability that we sold it for, it would have taken me seventy-one years worth of operating that business um, to re- to to make the money that I did off the sale of that business. And when you look at equa- the equation like that, it's like, do I really want to operate this business ten more years as is, or do I want to take the money off the table? Well, of course, when you get to seventy-one years, I don't, you know, most likely don't have seventy-one years left of living, so. Uh, it made a lot of sense to sell that business. But the three big questions I always get asked, and I always ask myself as I architect the business for sale. Number one, it's, it's performance and it's financial performance. Um, uh, usually about 80% of businesses um, are valuated off of their EBITDA, right? So they're looking at your net your net profit. Um, and that net profit um, then has a multiple of value. Um, some businesses, SaaS-based companies, um, you know, a few other tech, typically tech-infused companies, um, get valuated off of their top-line revenue, but that's a, a completely different multiple. They're doing $40 million in top-line and somehow get a billion-dollar valuation. Uh, crazy, crazy stuff out there when it comes to tech. Um, that's not the place I play um, because it's also, it also has the highest risk, and it's also uh, it's a very red ocean in that space. Um, you know, it's people trying to take on Google and Uber and uh, Apple and, you know, people out there that uh, are, are very, very tech uh, savvy. Um, for me, I'm playing typically the valuation off of EBITDA or, or let's just say net profitability. So number one, I have to make sure that I'm, I'm architecting my business to generate a lot of net revenue. Secondly, the valuation uh, and the multiple comes off of intellectual property, right? So IP, what do you do different if you've ever watched Shark Tank? It's why, um, you know, my friend Kevin O'Leary says, uh, you, you, you know, why should I give you a million dollars for 40% of your company? If I could go take a half a million and go build it myself, right? Your company has to have some uniqueness to it. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to have some special sauce or some proprietary language, What it means is you have to do something different that's hard to replicate. For instance, your data might be uh, hard to replicate. It might be the way you do things. It might be some technology piece that you put into your business. It might be uh, the cadence or the structure of how you do things. It might be your clientele or the contracts you have. All of that can be intellectual property. And to the degree that you can isolate and understand the value of that intellectual property, you can get a higher uh, multiple. Uh, For instance, I had a company... That was doing less than a three hundred thousand dollars in net revenue, Um, and we sold it at twenty seven times multiple. And it's because of a small algorithm that we built uh, in scoring the actual assets. Um, We had a a, a proprietary algorithm that was under the company called Rent Facts, and we had that algorithm built, and it scored uh, performance uh, for the company. And I got a twenty seven x or twenty seven. Times value on that company because of the intellectual property, not because of uh, how much success it was having. It was because of the intellectual property. And then, lastly, thirdly, it's the operating system. So, I think sometimes when you hear operating system, you think software, it's more of like an operating model. So, uh, for instance, many of you have heard of EOS or traction or scaling up. I use uh, what we call the empire operating system. This is something I've created. and About 25, 24, 2,500 businesses across the United States are using this now. And the reason why a, an operating system is so important is because when you sell the business, typically the top tier of leadership goes away or has the potential of going away. What a private equity firm wants to know is, is, is there a system that I can plug leadership into where the business just continues to run without disruption? So I build all my businesses with the same language, the same KPIs, the same structures. And yes, I use uh, the Empire OS side, which is the actual system, but the model is the, is the important part. So whether you run on traction or you run on uh, scaling up or you run on Six Sigma, if you're in manufacturing, um, all of those are very, very important. And you'll get a higher multiple because now the private equity firm knows that if they lose that top leader of man- the layer of management, they can plug right into it. And, um, and put somebody in there that can easily be trained and operate on a systemized business. And so that's really the, where the operating system comes in. So I'm architecting all of this on the purchase of the company. And I'm doing this as soon as possible, right? So I'm buying a company, I'm determining its pathways for financial performance. I'm trying to determine what intellectual property or things that make me different or my, my chief differentiator. And then lastly, I'm overlaying an operating system. That prepares me for exit typically quicker than anyone else. It allows me to take that minnow, grow it into a mid-sized fish to serve it up to to the whales. Let me just give you a quick case study, and then um, we'll open it up for some discussion and questions. Here's a company I bought uh, last year. FitCon is the world's largest fitness convention. Um, The reason I use this one is because most people say, should I just buy businesses in a space that I understand? My answer is not necessarily. We always try, and I know what happens is a lot of real estate investors, especially, You know, I know many of you are real estate investors. You try to buy businesses that are adjacent to your company. So you go out and you buy a brokerage or you buy a title company or you buy some sort of a service-based company that helps your real estate or or you go buy an HVAC company or whatever. And sometimes that plays uh, uh, to your detriment because you then rely on your current company um, to feed that new company leads and opportunity. And what happens is, is nine times out of 10, that new company becomes a parasite to the old company. And it's just the host now. And what I like is I like uh, creating separation and differentiation and going into new spaces because it makes me treat the businesses completely separate and different. Um, I taught... Group of people about a month ago, this same concept. And I had a a guy that owned a multifamily uh, group. He had a a bunch of class A holdings. He went out and bought a private security company. Um, The private security company is thriving. And I said to him, How much crossover between your private security company and multifamily? He was like, Zero. And I said, How's that working out for you? He said, Great. He said, Now it just gave me a different area to focus on. And he said, I took the same principles by which I was running my multifamily company and applied it over there. But because of the there was a lack of crossover, we had to treat it as separate and we had to put emphasis this on This webinar growth. was previously really recorded and converted so to a I listening to FitCon, format. I, I now, I, I don't please enjoy this timely and no valuable experience. market I'm, information I'm, I'm from fit, expert conscious. commercial uh, real estate healthy. investor, James out. Kandasami and special guests. I didn't know influencers in the space. I didn't know anybody in the space. I didn't know the brands in the space. But what I saw was a huge opportunity. Um, the founder of this, um, was a decent operator, but wasn't making any money. So let me just kind of run you through the deal numbers. So 2022 stats, they did, um, $1.2 million in revenue. Um, they had 31,000 people in attendance in two events. Um, there was, we actually took over right before the third event. Um, they had three employees total and they did $180,000 in profit. Now watch, watch the, just the deal. So this is me kind of getting into like looking at the deal and really underwriting it. They had 300,000 social followers. They were all health conscious and love fitness. Their average ticket revenue per attendee was about $20. So um, if you kind of just do the math um, they had about 60 or I forget what the percentages are, but maybe 60% or so um, uh, in, um, in ticket sales and the rest was all sponsorship. Um, and I, first of all, asked myself, like, what, what, and by the way, these events are two and three days, what two and three day event have you gone to that only cost you $20 today, right? Like, I mean, you go to Disney World, you're spending 100 bucks a day uh, in tickets, and it's like $20 was extremely low. Um, we, uh, the average sponsorship was about $3,800. Now, um, as I looked at that, they had no additional sales items, no upsells, no merchandise, nothing. So I felt like there was huge opportunity here. I went in and I asked, uh, I gave him an offer of $390,000. That was the purchase price for the deal. Um, I uh, negotiated $170,000 down, right? He said he absolutely had to have some cash off the table. He wasn't making ends meet. He needed some cash. So I got to the place of 170. Why did I do 170? Well, if you go back up to the 2022 stats, he was doing 180,000 in profit. What I was trying to do is negotiate that I put down less than what I knew I would make in profit if I just maintained this asset. He also was taking $100,000 salary. So, for instance, I I gave him I offered him $170,000 down hoping that we wouldn't go above $180,000 down so that I knew that I could recoup my investment capital within the first year. Next, um, I asked him to finance 220000 over 18 months. What I knew was that they were generating uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $90,000 per event. And I would most likely have four events in an 18-month time period, which put me at about $360,000 uh, in revenue if I just maintained the business as is. So I asked him to, 20, to, uh, put 20, or the, to finance $220,000 I think I did it at uh, 4% to him um, as an interest rate. I took 65% ownership into my group. I set aside 10% ownership to the new CEO. So I didn't have to pay him so much. I could let them play in the upside. And then I set aside 25% ownership to big influencers. What I didn't know about the space was all these influencers that are heavily built on social media and Instagram and so on and so forth. And if you go back um, right there, these three guys at the top, they uh, are on a Discovery Channel show called The Diesel Brothers, Uh, Heavy D, Diesel Dave, and The Muscle. They're all funny characters. And uh, they are uh, owners in the business, um, primarily uh, the guy they call The Muscle, uh, Keaton. And then below that, you actually see another two influencers, uh, Rob and Dana Lynn Bailey, Dana Lynn is the uh, first female Miss Olympia winner, and she, I think she won it four times. She's one of the, um, she's, when you look at her Instagram and her social, she's one of the largest female fitness influencers in the world. And then her husband, Rob, uh, also has a massive following, two or 3 million people, and he also owns a large supplement company. So we we ended up granting them ownership. That's what I set aside as far as the deal structure. I only gave away um, about 10% of the ownership to the big influencers. I still have some set aside that I could grant uh, more influencers. And the craziest part about this deal uh, is that the end result of that was um, our average ticket price in our first event went from $20. It went from $20 to $36 a ticket. Um, So we almost doubled our ticket revenue. Our average sponsorship went up to $5,600. And we did over 600000 in our first event in sponsorship. We have already doubled the value of this business. And I've only owned it since last uh, November. And uh, I have an LOI on it today to sell it um, at a, about a $7 million valuation. Now you say, well, why would you sell it? Well, part of it is, is I really only wanted the date out of this company. We, we've generated about 3 million people interested in fitness. And since then, I have bought a supplement company, a merchandise line specific to fitness, um, and a proprietary testing mechanism um, that uh, 21,000 doctors use called the Metabolic Code. All I really wanted this company for was their data. So what I'll do is I'll turn this into about a $6 million profit to our partnership, keep the data to now um, supplement the other three companies that I bought inside of this vertical, and get out of the live event space, which is always undulating. um, And you kind of see kind of the methodology and how I'll move in and out of deals like this. this was actually fairly easy to find people to run for me um i found a lot of people that were in the fitness space i hired away a way lady that ran uh, a, a supplement company out of south uh, florida and i hired a big uh, fitness influencer that was already running multiple gyms uh, as the leader of this company out of utah uh, relocated them to florida to where we are and uh, it's a viable growing company um, i put it out there for sale uh, we got uh, the offer and the money that we wanted, and we actually have an LOI and expect to close on this business in the next 30 days. Um, so that just shows you the speed at which I'm moving in these private equity firms. So I'll kind of open it up for questions um, and see if there's anything else. I know I've I've uh, come close to the two o'clock hour, so. Uh, James, Ault, I'm happy to answer any yeah,
1: questions. Sure. So let me ask a few questions because there's so much questions, so many questions I have myself. So just a quick thing. Who's buying? I mean, who's the who's the person? I mean, is it like large institutional private firm that's buying this business, or is it like a private guy buying this business?
0: Uh, for the FitCon uh, company, it's uh, this one is actually a private buyer um who also owns a very, very large supplement company. Um, a supplement company that's valued at about $1.5 billion, okay. um, wants to control this space. And so he has the capital of an institutional buyer, but he, he is privately held. Okay. Most of the businesses I'm selling, though, I'm selling to these private equity firms. I get calls every single week right now from private equity firms saying, what else? What other company do you have? Do you have any that are ready to serve up? Do you have anything that are, is mature they're, they're so hungry with this $1.1 trillion sitting on the sideline. They're begging for me to grow businesses and sell them to them.
1: Got it. And what's their motivation? Is it cash
0: flow or do they just want to, you know, have business? Typically, typically, it's adjacency and larger growth. So private equity firms, all they're trying to do is, you know, get some sort of a yield to their investors. And so they're sitting on, you know, typically hundreds of millions or billions of dollars there's actually one right up the street from you, James. That calls me all the time, right there in Austin. And they they're specific to the real estate space, and they're looking for fintech, prop tech, anything technology inside of real estate. And um, what they want is they already have a large a grouping of companies specific to real estate, typically retail real estate. And so what they're looking is is for companies that they know if they could buy for fifty to hundred million. They could take their massive database of retail um, agents and, and, and retail uh, buyers and infuse this technology into it. So they're typically looking uh, for adjacency to something they already have and something with meat on the bone that they could potentially grow and get return for their investors. Got it. Got it.
1: So uh, and what, what is the I mean, you said you would like to buy from sellers who uh, want to get and who are willing to give, willing to take equity, I guess, right? rather than giving. Yes. So how do you, how do you uh, probe that kind of motivation? I mean, uh, when you find a seller, I mean, let's say a business broker right now, bring you a business. Is that the first question you're going to ask, or are you just going go to go through the due diligence and later find how can I? I'm going to
0: typically go to due diligence first. Um, okay. You know, we've bought and sold enough that I have a good eye for what I like. Um, and so uh, we typically go um, after certain companies and certain types of companies that, I, that I've had success in. I love, I love service-based companies over product-based companies because we've just done well in that space. Um, and um, I'm typically going straight into due diligence, signing NDAs, going into due diligence, looking underneath the covers. And then my first offer is always an equity offer. You know, it's always, okay. hey, why don't you go with me on this journey and I'm usually using the leverage of my, my track record. Like, look, I've sold all these businesses. If I sell your business at 10 times its value, then, you know, then you get to play in that upside with me. Um, you don't want to miss out on that. That's usually the way that I'm buying them because I have that tracker track record to pull from. Um, but that's always my first offer. Got it. Got it. So let me look at
1: some of the questions you have here. Are you, gonna sh- are you able to share this uh, deck?
0: Sure, I'll I'll send it to you, James. Okay, Egan. yeah, I can send it out, everyone. Do you
1: invest in stocks? What strategy do you
0: follow by investing in stocks? I don't invest in stocks um, primarily because the few times that I've tried, I I feel like I I can never time the market right. You're like me. I going. Yeah, so what I have is I have a small portfolio of blue chip stocks that are just okay. sitting for twenty years. You know, it's like the apples and the I have Hewlett Packard and a bunch of just blue chip stuff. But because, but again, if you go back to my kind of triad, it's like what I'm really, really focused on is generating as much active capital as I can, and then dumping that into passive income and then trying to get that passive income as large as I possibly can to then move into um, my endowment and legacy pieces. And stocks just don't fit well in that, in that triad for me. Got it. Is there a book that you recommend to learn more? um there's a lot of books um first of all i'd recommend this great author his name is james (laughs) Kandasamy. he he wrote the book on passive income um no i i honestly do think it's one of the, the the better books but i for me there's not a lot of books on diversification that don't take you down the stock route and um i have a large publisher pushing me hard on writing a book on how to buy and sell businesses because that really doesn't exist today either um, especially in these like small cap. And so I would expect that I'll have my book out on it um probably in the next six, six to eight months. I've already started it and and I'll get it out soon. So the next question
1: is assuming we have EOS down pad, what industry would you suggest we target as an emerging space? At what point would you suggest we bring a business to you for potential acquisition?
0: Yeah, Chris, I love that uh, question. If you have EOS down pat, if you remember, that was the three things that I asked for. I said make sure that you understand, you know, performance, you understand IP, and lastly, the operating system. If you have EOS down pat, the one limitation to EOS, I love EOS. I actually ran thirty-one companies on EOS all simultaneously. Is that EOS doesn't allow for true scale. Um, EOS, like uh, the reason we use Empire, is because Empire has five phases of business that takes you from Um, from all the way from startup or perseverance, pre-profit, all the way to succession, how to sell your business. And it's the one thing that EOS lacks. So what I would be very careful in EOS is getting anything that has multi-dimensional tiers to it. For instance, um, I have a coffee company. The coffee company did not work well on EOS because it had the retail shops, it had Wholesale, it had the roasting side at e ecom, and then it also had um, the uh, the wholesale to retail. So we're on the shelves of barns or uh, on the shelves of Whole Foods, and so EOS does not create an environment that allows for that to play well. So what I look at is if you're really good at EOS, is look for single service or single product companies um, in the emerging spaces. Um, to me, um, I. I it's really tough. Most people, um, they use emerging and and what they're looking for is is this like holy grail unicorn. I actually go away from emerging spaces and go into more traditional spaces that I can find businesses that are not run well. And by the way, I, I would say a good eighty percent of all small businesses are not run well. if you if you're good at eos, you probably run your business well. So what I'd be looking for is something that, um, is out there that is at a low cost that has a single product or service that maybe you could add additional services to, but isn't really, really complex. And I would start looking there and I, I would look at brokerage sites and just see what fits that criteria.
1: Is there any specific industry vertical this P companies are more interested in?
0: Well, every one of them have their own um, their own vertical that they dwell in. So like, for instance, I'm building my coffee company. We're adding 10 new stores in the next two years. Uh, We've got a big grand opening coming up this weekend. And the reason I'm doing that is because there's a private equity firm out of New York City that only deals in the food space. Um, And they've already told me if I can in the next three years, get it to a very specific, basically if I can get it to $28 million in profit, that they'll give me a 10 multiple on the stores with some of the proprietary roast we have. And I could be looking at a 280 to 300 million dollar exit. So um, every PE company has its own vertical. For instance, I said talked about the one in Austin um, that is specific to real estate, and they only do um, you know they're only typically doing adjacency to retail real estate, and they're adding fintech or prop tech uh, to it. Um, And so really, it's it's more about just finding the right uh, private equity firm that deals inside of the. You know the business that your business type you're dealing with Got it. Do you have a
1: few more minutes? I mean, we have a quite oh, a number of should. questions I want to go through, so I just want to make sure. Do you always seek a full initial control, or would would consulting for equity would be a worthwhile approach?
0: Um, I always seek full control because I have a model that allows me to operate typically better than most. Um, if you're in a space though where you're you're close to good operators and you have a consulting model, I'm not against that model. I like that model. A lot of my friends have that model, and you know a lot of empire coaches that are out there do that model. So instead of taking twenty or thirty thousand for an engagement, they'll take 5, and 5 percent equity or some sort of upside in the company. Um, I don't mind that model at all. I just, for me personally, like full control because I'm a good operator. I have a good system and team uh, to perform these assets. Okay. So next question is, there's two questions into one. Do you usually use money syndication to raise this money, or how do you do that? Um, I I do um, a couple of different ways. I'm typically not putting a ton of cash out of pocket. Um, but on the deals that I do put cash out of pocket, I'm usually um, it's you know we have our own capital. Um, However, I do syndicate periodically, like, for instance, um, I just syndicated or I think we still have the syndication open on the coffee company, um, and we raised $5 million uh, for the 10 stores. um, And we basically syndicated that to, um, you know, a small group of investors. Um, And I do have kind of a syndicate structure that uh, we do put some of these deals out for. Um, but for the most part, I would say less than 10% of the deals I do are actually syndicated to investors. What I am doing sometimes, though, is I'll get a company that I'm performing that I know that if I, if, for instance, I'll, I'll take it to a private equity firm and I'll say, this is where it's at. And they'll say, well, we need about $10 million more in, um, in net revenue, then I may syndicate that company out. Uh, I, I may syndicate out a m- minority ownership in that for cash to infuse it for the growth. Because then we all get to play on the potential exit. Um, and so I will syndicate um, midstream companies that already have uh, in performance. That's what happened with the coffee company.
1: Got it. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, other questions, recording and slide deck would be shared after this meeting. I mean, in a couple of days, we'll do that. Um, what about buying franchisee like gym or ice cream or food restaurant? Are they good business
0: to make money? They, they really are. Um, you know, I would be very careful in buying anything that's more fad. You know, like right now, um, cookies are a big thing. And, you know, so you've seen a massive surge in crumble cookie. And then a buddy of mine owns a franchise called Dirty Dough. And I think they sold 70 franchises. I would be really careful in that space because those things typically have a, a lifespan. Um, I love things that have reoccurring revenue, though. Uh, For instance, I love franchises that have reoccurring revenue like gyms. Um, One of my, Andrew and I's business partners, um, Alex Rodriguez, the baseball player, he owns 2,000 gyms and his valuation on those gyms are insane because of the residual revenue that just comes through those gyms. Um, And so I do like franchises that have a residual model. Um, For instance, like tanning salons, um, you know, gyms, things like that. Are uh, great franchises to own. Great, uh, and and I think what throughout the
1: presentation you said you don't do product and services business. Did I hear it correctly,
0: or did you say you do you don't do product only? I do product and service based businesses. I just I feel like I've had more success in service based companies. Got um, it. So, but I do both. What I don't do is distressed product or distressed service companies. Right where you know. It's a service company and they've got a hundred bad Google reviews. That's just really hard to overcome. Got it. Got it. Got it. Awesome.
1: All right. I think that's the questions we have. Uh, thank you. Oh, hold, hold on. There's more questions coming in. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, what's all the passing? Yeah. Should I acquire a company in order to exchange uh, into a franchise as you exit or even affiliate model instead of a roll up into a sale of private equity?
0: Yes. Um in, in the empire system, the empire system that we built and we use in the succession plan, there's really about 10 different ways to create succession in the business or like the exit. Um, you could sell it you know, to your employees, you can pass on to heirs, you can sell it to a private equity firm. But a couple of the strategies are you can turn it into a franchise and exit that way. Um, we looked at that specifically for the coffee company, like what have we just sold the franchises And did that, but we really wanted to maintain the the quality of the roasting and the uh, experience, so we decided to go away from it. But another thing is, it's going public today. You know, public going public is another way to exit your company, and there's a lot of SPAC money out there. I know SPAC to some degree has these uh, special purpose companies um, that are are specific to taking a company public is a very popular way um, to take a company public, and they may just take it to, to OTC or whatever. Um, but I've taken three companies public as an exit um, where I'll, I'll actually take capital off the table in that public offering and then try to play on the upside for any of the the share increase. Um, and so there's lots of ways to exit your company. You can always check out Empire, uh, which it, if you go to Empire OM, OM stands for operating model, empireom.com, you can see a lot of that. I think there's online stuff that you can learn about uh, the succession plan for your business, how to sell it. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Eddie, for coming
1: and adding a lot of value to our audience. So, you know, we're going to be publishing this on a webinar and promoting it through our social media. And also we'll be doing it on a podcast uh, format as well. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank Thank you you all. We're going to be ending the webinar. Thank you.